Welcome into a special Big Ten Football Media Days edition of BTN's Take 10 Podcast. This is Alex Rue, BTN.com, and this is going to be your all-encompassing Big Ten Football Preview Podcast. In case you missed the release of the first part of this two-part episode special yesterday, we're doing one episode covering the Big Ten East Division, which dropped Monday, July 24th, and one on the West, which you're listening to right now. And we released them to align with Big Ten Media Days, which took place in Chicago on July 24th and 25th. And we were able to pull this off with the assistance of reporters from landof10.com who cover the Big Ten very in-depth, and they help us broke down the teams, coaches, players, everything you need to know about Big Ten football. Um, they were able to provide some really phenomenal in-depth analysis, and I learned a ton about the teams from, from chatting with these writers, and I'm sure you guys listening will as well. And I also had them make some preseason predictions at the end of each discussion, so be sure to stay tuned for those. As I mentioned, this is the West Division episode. The East Division episode is already out, so be sure to check both out on iTunes, SoundCloud, Podbean, Google Play, or just check my Twitter at ARUBTN because I will be tweeting these out pretty regularly. And while you're at it, I want to remind you to download and subscribe to the Take 10 podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, pretty much all the platforms I just mentioned a minute ago. And to rate and comment if you like the show, because that is important feedback that we, we love to get and receive here at BTN. So there was so much to get to, so much uh, really good football insight. These episodes are longer than a normal episode of Take 10, so let's not delay any longer. Let's begin. First up is Sean Keeler, who had a lot to offer with general Big Ten West analysis, especially coverage of the defending division title winners, the Wisconsin Badgers. So talking to him is a perfect place to start. It's time for the Big Ten West division preview on Take 10. I'm now joined by Sean Keeler for additional expertise on the Big Ten West and the Big Ten at large. He covers the conference for Land of Ten, so find his work at landof10.com, and be sure to follow him on Twitter, at Sean Keeler. What's up, Sean? Welcome to the show. Hey, Alex. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. And uh, before we dive into some 2017 Big Ten West talk, I was hoping you could fill fill me in a little bit, and uh, all the listeners and fans out there. I know Land of Ten is doing a Big Ten at 100 project, kind of aligning with the 100-year anniversary of the conference. So just fill us in. What's what's the mission behind that project? What's what's kind of the impetus for that? <laughs> well, the, the folks who know Big Ten history are probably going to scratch their heads the title and go, now, hey, wait a minute. Wasn't the league founded in 1896? Yes. Yes, it was. So we have to kind of qualify, and maybe some of my other colleagues have for you already, kind of what the Big Ten at 100 is. Um, and we we're actually being quite literal. Uh, my boss, Mike Bass, had sort of helped put this together and said, you know, in 1917, that was the first time the league was ever referred to as the Big Ten because that's when Michigan rejoined the league, sure. uh, as you know, after some time as an independent. Uh, and there's all we've, we've done pieces, and I know you've talked to some of my colleagues about this, about that, and I did one in particular earlier this summer about this sort of uh, Twilight Zone alternate universe where what if Michigan did what Notre Dame did and stayed an independent? How would, how would that have been many years on down the line? So that's where our time frame for 100 comes from. Um, I'm also working on something, actually, as we speak, on uh, the history of Camp Randall Stadium turning 100 this year, too. 
Uh, and uh, in particular, some of we've got some fun stuff coming up on the history of uh, of jump around as a tradition. But I know we'll circle back to some badger stuff later. Awesome, sounds good. And yeah, definitely check out all that that uh, land of ten, uh, land of ten dot com, the Big Ten at a hundred project. Some really good stuff, and uh, especially if you are into uh, some historical perspectives on the Big Ten conference, definitely check that out. But uh, we'll get into some more football specific talk here now. And and Sean, as you as you scan the division and uh, really the whole conference, um, before we even get into the teams themselves, I think just looking at the the caliber of the coaches, top to bottom in the conference, uh, while there's some clear favorites to win the Big Ten program-wise, we see some of the teams that maybe aren't contenders this year, programs like Illinois, uh, Minnesota, and Purdue, struggle to find consistent success, have, have gone out and spent money and brought in guys like Lovey Smith, P.J. Fleck, Jeff Brom, and, and sort of injected some enthusiasm into, into those fan bases, even though those teams are at the bottom of the conference. So, is this? Do you think the strongest pool of coaches, pool of coaches you've seen, uh, top to bottom in the conference in, in recent memory? I'm going back a couple decades, but I have to say yes, and an unequivocal yes, because let's just take the most recent hires. Uh, in the case of Purdue with uh, with Jeff Brom, I think that's way way under the radar because of where Purdue has kind of kind of slipped to in recent years. Uh, and obviously, P.J. Fleck in Minnesota, the, the, the hype around that kind of speaks for itself. And didn't we see the announcement that ESPN is going to follow them around, yeah. kind of HBO style, uh, and, and really break that down because he likes that kind of access. I think more than just the depth, the amount of, I, I guess, curating, you know, social media uh quantifiability, if, if that's maybe too many syllables of a word breaking down the line, but you know what I mean? For sure. That kind of, that kind of, depth on down the lead with, 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 you know, no disrespect to Tracy Clays and, uh, and, and the folks who were on the staff at Purdue before that, I think everybody just kind of took a meteoric jump. There isn't, there isn't anybody in this league that you either wouldn't follow on Twitter or if you're a fan, wouldn't have something that got you excited or got your recruits excited. And that includes Illinois, which to me is, is maybe in the most, curious position. I don't want to say awkward. I don't want to say disadvantaged because obviously Purdue has got a long, long climb, which they dug for themselves. But that it, 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 everyone's got a, got a narrative, and everyone's got a compelling narrative. And if there was somebody who wasn't Lovey Smith and didn't have that Super Bowl experience and didn't have that NFL catch today, I think you, you would point to Illinois and say, you know, maybe that's the team that that might be in trouble. And some might, given that I think that that bomb really was kind of one of those sneaky good hires at a place like Purdue where it's hard to find, where if you miss, like Northwestern historically, if you miss in Indiana, you miss a place like that, the, the climb is a lot harder. <laughs> you take yourself a lot deeper ditch. Sure. A lot of people really like that bomb hire, and the more that people watch Western Kentucky play, the more they think, you know, this is something that that will translate in a place where that side of the game, even if it isn't a complete team and will never compete for talent the way that the big three in the Ohio State and, and Michigan have it, uh, that if, if, if they can go back to being a quarterback you in a, in a passing place, that that, that really resonates. Uh, and, and certainly in today's game, too, that, that opens up some things for, for those fans down the line. But everybody's got something interesting. And, and I don't... And, and that would have been the argument against Minnesota a year ago this time. And we're going to forget, and maybe history will wash over, just how actually pretty good last year's Gophers were. Yeah. 
Uh, and besides being one of the two Big Ten teams to win a bowl game, that was a legitimately good defense, has some legitimately good pieces back. But Tracy Clays, obviously they had their off-field controversies, but he, he was never someone that, that got anyone excited in a, in a social media or, a, or a, a, a viral sense. And that's completely flipped, and from a PR sense, uh, which is something you needed in, at, at the U in a, a, a pro market, in a place that, that really has to, has to have a, a show-me attitude to get the locals excited about Gopher Athletics. There's nobody who, who wants to grab you or get you like what he does, like PJ Flex. So everybody's got something. Not- and, and that's different. And then even if they, somebody, somebody's going to fall short there, and someone's going to have to prove it on the field. But as far as going into Big Ten Media Days, it's certainly got the kind of PR gap I haven't seen maybe in, in 20 years, 25 years. And I completely agree, especially the situation in Minnesota. I mean, Fleck comes in, and I, I really think it's a, a trickle-down effect, really, from, you know, Big Ten went out and got the big boys like Jim Harbaugh and Urban Meyer, and, and it puts pressure on ADs to go out and spend the money and find the next Jim Harbaugh or Urban Meyer, and maybe P.J. Fleck is the next Jim Harbaugh. I mean, he seems kind of like a, a mini one, especially from the, the PR standpoint, like you said. But, but yeah, it really is a, a, a trickle-down effect, not just from the network and the, and the money that comes in to the schools, but just the, the pressure now that if, if you don't get a program-changing coach, you can easily get left behind, and, and it's really hard to dig out of, like you said. Yeah, I, I think Purdue really – suffered the most from that comparatively. And they're going through their facilities upgrade. They, you know, Mike Bobinski has done this dance at a lot of places. Not so much on the football side, but I used to cover him back when he was at Xavier. That's dating myself quite a bit. Way, way back. I joked with him about that, that he's, his suitcase has a lot of stickers <laughs> on it. But but that's that's a place. It's not... The, the, the ceiling isn't super high, but the, the, the floor is, is dangerous. And in Indiana, it's the same kind of deal. So yeah, and with Minnesota, you, you, you've just completely changed at least the, you know, the, the, the front porch looks completely different. And I would argue that football-wise, the front porch is Jerry Kill and those guys left. It wasn't in bad shape. It wasn't sexy. It, it wasn't interesting. It, it was kind of kind of a, a meat and potatoes in that Iowa-Wisconsin sort of school. But now you've, you, you've, you mix that foundation with, with the kind of, kind of you, know, you know, the, the sizzle, that that uh, they got a lot of stake, and now it's, it's sizzle with flack that makes it makes it different. And Lobby Smith was a lot of that last year, and I'll be curious to see at Illinois how long that honeymoon period, as you know, kind of kind of gives him, and what kind of grades that gives him. Because I'll say this of those two hires at Minnesota and Purdue, I you know, Fleck recruiting in the Big Ten remains to be seen, but in the long term, but I think the short term returns, nobody nobody sees them backing down from anybody. Uh, and uh, Purdue-wise, again, I think competitively, if they can be a, a, a kind of passing team that gets people excited, that has a chance to improve their competitive profile, too. That that division got a lot tougher, I think, in the offseason in ways that I... You're going to be hard-pressed to find gimmicks, uh, and certainly in the West, and, and as much as people dog it for not being the national picture, I think there's some real depth there where the East continues to be, although D.J. Jerkins did a good job, and, and Indiana's kind of riding itself and stabilizing itself, and the East feels a lot more top-heavy. Sure, and I know this is a, a West preview, but since we are talking first-year head coaches, and, and I know you're a big fan of Jeff Brom, um, I want to ask, who do you think is in better shape moving forward? Which program, with their first-year head coach in the state of Indiana, uh, Jeff Brom at Purdue or, or Tom Allen in Indiana? 
I'm, that's a really good question uh, for, for programs that don't get a lot of love. Um, I, I want to say Allen, Allen on the on the floor and and Brom on the ceiling again, and that's hedging my bet. It's probably an overly politically correct answer because I, I remember full well what, what Purdue looked like before Joe Teller and, and what it looked like after. And I, you know, I think that there's there's more there there. IU is is, is good as a baseline thing, but I always kind of wonder what the ceiling is, given given the, the profile of basketball there and and where the culture of things have been historically in Bloomington. But uh, out of the gate, you know, you know, Brown's got a tougher, he's got a steeper hill to climb uh, by far. But being in the West shortens that in a way that in the East, that, that I, I, is there a world where Indiana someday would crack the top three in the standings in the East? Yeah, I never say never. I I you know I, I've seen a White Sox World Series championship, a Cubs World <laughs> Series championship, and a, and a Northwestern Rose Bowl. You never say never. You do say highly unlikely. I always say to people out in Atlanta for Corbin Medium, but they're lamenting the Hawks and the you know the Super Bowl with the Falcons and Atlantans have have gone through a lot that way as a pro town. I said I don't think the Hawks will never win a title. I said how long do you plan to live? <laughs> you know, it's right. a case of, of when, you know, it'll come around again. I just don't know how long it'll be. Uh, so I, I'd say that about IU football-wise, too. But in comparing the two, I think the potential at Purdue is greater because the, the climb to break the top three in the West is it's a shorter climb compared to the OSU, the, the Michigan's the best states. Yeah. And Michigan State when they're right. Yeah, and you mentioned you mentioned Northwestern, and I'm glad you did because I want to show them a little love. And, and I want to get your opinion on where you think Northwestern fits into this whole picture because they have some serious talent, especially on the offensive side of the ball. They got Justin Jackson, who's going to probably break a bunch of Northwestern records this year if he hasn't already, and then Clayton Thorson at quarterback. And Patrick Gerald seems to have that program in, in a pretty good spot, and they've had some some success and some really big stages uh, over the last few years. And he's been he's been doing it for a while there. So where does Northwestern fit in the uh, in the Big Ten West? I think we underrate where the floor is there, and that it's 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 been. I, I think it's put it another way. I think Northwestern is what Purdue should aspire to, if that makes sense. That their their worst doesn't feel like what it was a generation before, and that's a credit to Pat Fitzgerald, the administration, Phillips, everybody on down. What's been been changing uh, transformationally over the last twenty five thirty years. Uh, that said, with, with this year specifically, they're kind of like Minnesota to me. They're kind of the division's enigma, if that makes sense. I was a little bit that way too, but I think you know now what you're getting from Wisconsin that that, that floor is so much higher that the, the question is always the ceiling. Nebraska, you, you think you have an idea, although I think this year than the injury of Chris Jones, you've got some things that complicated that. Like Iowa and Northwestern always tend to get a little underrated because of, of who their coaches are and 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 where they've been. And Minnesota's kind of the enigma. With the Cats, I'm curious to see just how good Clayton Thorson is without Austin Carr. Because to me, that guy was the biggest difference in that guy's in Thorson's development from year one to year two. Uh, Carr pretty much single-handedly almost wins the Iowa game. There, tough place to play. Really kind of stuck a stuck a fork in Iowa season right there, where 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 they were limping. Got themselves squared away. It was great that you can stay. Uh, and, and things just seemed to steamroll for that offense after that rough first three weeks for them once they got going as a partnership. And I, 
I mean, I, I go back to the, the Dwayne Bates of the world at, at, at NU. Those those guys were really good. He was as good as any of them down the line. Having that, they didn't have they hadn't had a marquee receiver like that in a long time. You're not bringing that back now. Um, how is how is Thorson in an emergency situation when he's in trouble? Where's he going to look? Is he going to be able to convert those third longs and make those things happen the way that that they started to do and really get rolling and keep that going into the bowl season? So I'll be very curious that way. I think you kind of know. A little like the program itself, Justin Jackson's underrated, tough, and you know what you're going to get. You almost take it for granted that it's a, a 95 to 150-yard day every every time with that guy. So, again, his health is, is the most remarkable thing. So whatever he gets career-wise and the guy that he knocks off there just to be there, he's earned it because he's as tough as they come. And, and he's kind of emblematic of um, a little bit of the program as a whole that way. So, But, but overall, they're doing that upper group, but, but – what breaks late, you know, how far they'll go ceiling-wise this year, whether they could crack that top two or compete for the division, that's going to come down to Thorson because that, that's, he's in, in, in a way he's one of the more interesting guys in the whole league because clearly having that number one target, that safety valve for him was so helpful to move forward. And I'll be curious to see what he looks like without that next year, this year. Yeah, it'll be interesting to follow for sure. Um, but we can't talk Big Ten West without a heavy focus on the Big Red machine up in Madison, the Wisconsin Badgers. Um, they've played in four of the six Big Ten championship games. They look to have a pretty favorable path back again to Indianapolis this year with a really solid team coming back and a pretty pretty nice schedule the way it lays out. So if you put your finger on the pulse of that fan base, what do you think the expectations are for the Badgers in uh, year three under Paul Christ? Well, the expectation is going back to Indy and finishing what they started. And I think – and. That's a fair bar on paper, although a year ago at this time we looked at that schedule and went, boy, if they win eight, that's a good year. Oh, poor Paul, poor Badgers. What do they do? They go out and start getting you know less miles out of work right, right from week one. Right. You know, that was such emotional lift in Green Bay and covering that game and seeing what that meant to those seniors and that team. It's hard to nitpick a lot of – major issues because structurally and culturally, uh, I always kind of joke with my Nebraska friends and they cringe, but, you know, Barry Alvarez, a Husker alum, the, 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 the Badgers now do a better impersonation of what Nebraskans think Nebraska is than the Huskers themselves are, physically. Uh, the running game, the defense, all those foundational things that are such a part of just years of big red football. Hey, you know, that the, the debating way, that they're that's the Alvarez way. They're running that in Madison and running it better than they're they're currently running in Lincoln, and, and that's a pretty proven foundation <laughs> as a point. I'll be curious to see with that schedule. And this is not one I've heard a lot of people talk about. I wonder how they're going to play at BYU, right? Um, because I don't think a lot of if any Big Ten teams have gone to Provo um, in historically that I've seen, and that's one of those kind of sneaky. You know, people who talk about I, I certainly think drawing the line at, at, a, at a division championship is, is kind of a, a fair baseline. Will it be a top five playoff contender? That's the game that will determine that, because I think BYU is a little better than people think. Obviously, the Michigan State, they, they, that was a, a down, you know, the, the, the death spiral for the Spartans in a lot of ways. It was really going by the time the Cougars went up there, but they weren't afraid to go places and pop some money in the mouth this year. So, I I think that's going to be an interesting one. That if you can get past that, and then I think that then that getting Northwestern at home, 
right off the top of that. I think you're going to have a, a real good picture in week three and week four for them how this how this narrative is going to set up. And it, it wouldn't shock me if they're 4-0, but it wouldn't shock me if they run into trouble at Provo, too. Yeah, assuming they uh, avoid a letdown against BYU, I mean, really their, their toughest game is probably at home against Michigan, and their toughest road game is probably at Nebraska. And, and Nebraska is, uh, as um, our Land of Ten writer will allude to later on in the podcast, probably maybe even rebuilding a little bit. They might be in, in flux a little bit this year. So really, I mean, you look at those two games, and those both set up very nicely for Wisconsin, assuming, like you said, they, do. they can avoid uh, week three, I believe, against BYU, a letdown there. Yeah, yeah. Transitional, is that fair for the Huskers? We don't know if they're – they're certainly not rebuilding, but but this is – Sure, yeah, transitional. Of, yeah. Out of the, 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 the Calabrasca kids, in a way, the way, the way the Michigan is, the way that now we're going to see kids who haven't had a chance to play, you've lost a lot of your senior-dominated stuff um, on that end. But but they played the Huskers so well. Yeah. Um, and they tried Huskers fans nuts. Did you see that poll in the Lincoln Journal Star? Because this blew me away a bit over the or earlier in the spring, I think it was, that they, they polled, uh, I don't know what percentage it was, with several hundred Husker fans, but I think 70% of their readers said that Wisconsin was the program's biggest rival, not Iowa. Really? That ratio surprised me, but it tells me also where the expectations are, and, and that's how high the Badgers, to get back to that here, kind of set the bar for, for where, you know, again, Nebraska wants to be on, on so many levels. And that's a compliment to, to Barry Alvarez and, and, and Paul Chris and guys on down the line and, and setting that through. I'm a little curious with Wisconsin. Um, what, I, I don't want to say the leadership baton, I guess, but some of those seniors are so impactful, literally, uh, behind the scenes and the Vince Beagles and the, you know, and the, and the Corey Clements and, and, and uh, got into Dario Ogamongawali a little bit and, uh, those are good guys, and those are guys that have been through have been through so much to that point that you your senior class and you've got a good team. They're going to be the ones that can kind of steer you through the rocks if, if things are dicey. And for the most part, they they, they really did. And even with people hurt, who who picks that up? I mean, Jack Jack Sitchie obviously is going to be the guy that, that people are going to look to, and he he's certainly not shy about expressing his opinion that way too. But that that gap, I want to see who's going to pick up those raids and really take it, because that's going to tell the difference between, as we talk to look at the schedule, whether this is a very good 10-2 and two kind of team or a, a, a real memorable 11-1 or even 12-0. and 0. You know, mention that Michigan game. If that, that's the kind of kind of bar you're looking at where the, the floor is pretty low there, but the ceiling could be, could be really, really incredible, depending on who kind of settles that in the locker room and what that chemistry looks like. Sure, and getting back to that poll you mentioned in, in the Lincoln paper, I did not know about that, but it does it does surprise me a little bit. I, I'd, I'd always just assume that Iowa was their natural in conference rival, especially seeing the bickering that goes on in the in the Facebook comments <laughs> section on our on our page. But uh, yeah, and I think I think transitional is a, is a fair term, and and uh, Aaron might have even used that because, like you said, they're certainly not rebuilding. They're in year three under Mike Riley, so transitional is a very fair term, I think, um, and that might even be being pessimistic. But uh, back to Back to Wisconsin, um, they look to be in, in pretty good shape at, at quarterback with Alex Hornibrook, um, but what's the situation at running back? Because Wisconsin always, always, always seems to have a workhorse or two back there. Uh, they lost both feature backs, like you mentioned, from last year and 
Corey Clement and uh, Dari Agumboale. So, so what's the stable in the backfield looking like this season for Wisconsin? You almost just get for granted, you, you know, given that, that it feels like just turning bodies and turning bodies and making it work. You know, Bradford Shaw hasn't done a step long relative to what you know limited time he's seen, but we haven't seen him in a lot of big carries, you know, in in a, in a number one kind of role in a big big game with a tight uh, limited amount of snaps, even in the Big Ten title game. Uh, you know, he certainly hasn't wilted under any challenge he's taken to this point. You know, and that's a good sign. There's a lot of people, they hear scouts say a year ago, a year from now, that you're going to have coaches in the SEC saying, how did that guy get away? Which is, again, a complex, <laughs> that's a compliment uh, on down the line. And also, it's their development of, of, of what they've, they've kind of worked with him on to that point. People like Chris James a lot. You know, I think that, that, that you've got options, that it, it may have to kind of sort itself out a, a little bit, but I don't think they're going to have a problem getting a, a team that's and with that offensive linebacker. They were banged up in the spring, but assuming that, that they're healed up, you're not going to have a problem getting a team that's running for 180, 175 to 185 yards a game. I think how that's going to be divvied up in the 15 to 25 carry range I don't know that you're going to have that one lead dog right away, but if it's anybody, it, it might be Shaw. All right, and uh, switching over to the de- defensive side of the ball, a lot of eyes are going to be on the defense, especially because of who's in charge. It's uh, first-year defensive coordinator Jim Leonard. Uh, of course, is a former Badger himself and is, is looked at, I think, as kind of a rising star in coaching after playing in the NFL. So what do you expect out of their, their defense under new leadership? I, I think... You won't see a, a, a huge philosophical. Mean, it ain't broke. So I don't think philosophically they're they're going to try to reinvent the wheel because they know they don't have to. Um, I, I think as far as things that the team wants to to integrate, obviously coming from the secondary on down, they, they're so sound. They weren't. You know, again, we go back to that championship game. They weren't perfect, and, and when they had some depth issues, uh, guys got exposed against a very very good passing attack. To be fair, and at least a couple NFL current and, and future receivers and well maybe maybe several uh, on the Penn State side of things and they, they could be beaten deep. I think that they're gonna take stock of, of that whole pressure uh, risk reward thing on the on the blitzing end and, and some of that may be tweaked a little because I I want to see how comfortable I'm curious to see on the defensive side how comfortable Jim Leonard is with putting guys uh, on islands one on one because I think some of their cornerbacks it ran into trouble with that last year, size-wise and matchup-wise. But the front seven, you, you lose a guy like T.J. Watt that you know, some people have talked about, but I think there's so much depth in that front seven. Not unlike Iowa, um, to some degree, kind of Michigan has sort of young depth, but the talent's depth. I think, like Iowa, the talent in Wisconsin's front seven is such that I don't think there's going to be a huge drop-off in the run defense, and I, I'd be surprised if there was a massive drop-off uh, in the sacks and the pressure, despite losing those two star guys on the outside, because I think the system helped them there. But I'm serious how much gambling they're going to do. And I wonder if, if there's a balance there with what Jim Leonard's looking at, because if there was one weakness that could be exploited, and we saw it again in, in Indianapolis, it was being able to be beaten over the top. Uh, and, and all that hard work to grind it out and, and to, to build leads and to, to really physically dominate, as they did at the line of scrimmage in the first two quarters of that game, and, and then to have it just zip it back the other way 
uh, is something that I'm sure that they've looked long and hard at this offseason. I'd be very surprised if they were quite, I don't want to say they'll be risk-averse. I think they'll probably be maybe a little bit more balanced in that regard given the outcomes uh, toward the end of, of last year, but it's still going to be a good defense. I think it'll still be an aggressive defense, but I think it'll be a different kind of aggressive. All right, and the uh, most important question that at least I know I'm dying to know is who on that defense, if anyone, can replace Vince Beagle's luscious uh, hairstyle? Like, is there anybody that can that is next in that let it that uh that lettuce line of succession is what I'm going to call it? Uh, on hair wise, yeah, is there anyone that can replace that majestic mane? Jess Peavy's got some pretty good. When he gets it going, you know, he, he gets it pretty good. Um, I know they were doing doing a mullet deal on the, on the line last year, a little bit. But I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna go with a, I'm gonna go with a, an underdog and go with a, and go with TV. But on the on the defensive you know on the defensive side, uh, well, Sitchy Sitchy's gonna have the mohawk if he can if he can help it. So maybe I'll I'll go there. All right, so that's, it, that's kind of an obvious one. I'll go there. Like you're, you're, you, uh, you see these guys a lot more often. So, like for me, it's week one when they step out there, or when we go over to practice up in Madison later on uh, next month. That's probably when I'll get my first look at them. But I, I was just curious if there's any early candidates. But uh, <laughs> anyway, we're gonna get to uh, before I let you go some predictions, and we're doing this with every Land of Ten writer that we're having on. So we'll hold you to them uh, at the end of the season. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's good you'll go back yeah, and find me Great. yeah huge consequences if you screw up um, so the first one is the sleeper in the Big Ten West this season who do you think can maybe uh, if Wisconsin I, I, who I would say is the favorite doesn't uh, make it to Indy who do you think is the dark horse candidate to, to take their spot every year I want to put Minnesota there I do that's, and that, I didn't go there I have no dog in the fight I just think it would be last year they, they were my sleeper at this time. I'm like, they're gonna get there. And then they, they lost that home game to Iowa tight and, and it did never again had it, 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 the off season stuff aside, it, it still was a pretty solid year for them all, all told. Uh you know, if Iowa and I won't be the only one to say this, if they can take care of business, those first two league games, home with Penn State, won't be easy. But if they can dictate tempo in a game like that, it'd be better if they were playing cold. Um, at Michigan State, who's kind of an East enigma, all of a sudden, given what they went through last year, if if they're and we don't do any worse than splitting those two, presuming that they're three and zero out of the gate, and I, and I say that, and you know, then they'll struggle with Wyoming in the opener. Although I think they'll they will be three and zero coming out of that a non-conference run. Uh, you you got the potential there because they can win in Evanston. They can win in Madison. They have, um, and generally the division title is tend to, you know, secretly go down to that uh, Heartland Trophy game with Iowa, Wisconsin, um, and they can win in Lincoln. I, those there isn't a road game. The thing about Iowa, besides they like their front, you love their front seven. Uh, traditionally, when Kirk Ferentz has had his strongest defenses, that's when they kind of surprise. But I, I covered them back when. They had a 400-yard rusher, but, you know, all kinds of NFL, you know, for the team leader. We're talking 2003, 2004 because of injuries. That, that angry Iowa uh, was a running back hating God. That goes back well past a decade with injuries. That they, They've survived a lot when they've had a front-line defense is when they've had a lot of their best teams and a foundational 
uh, offensive line, which they've got pretty much everybody back on that front too. So they're 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 a not terribly sneaky, sexy underdog pick that if they could win in Madison, uh, that's going to put them and could win in East Lansing. That that's going to set them up well the rest of the year. I think that that's a sneaky schedule where they 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 could kind of kind of do that team that that it isn't isn't second that next group that that that, that could, could bite somebody. All right. How about uh, for the Big Ten West champion? Are you sticking with Wisconsin? I am. Um, I guess I'm not brave enough on the Hawkeye bandwagon to think that they would win all those three games. Right. <laughs> I just think that they could, um, it, it, assuming that there isn't anything catastrophic injury wise. Although they endured so much of that defensively last year and still maintained the high level. Um, getting Northwestern at home, they can navigate Lincoln. Uh, the Badgers in, in that second league game, um, having Iowa at home, the, the road games, uh, again, at Minnesota will be, that will be fascinating because of whatever Fleck does or doesn't, well, what do we, doesn't do, he will do. <laughs> the the buildup to the Minnesota-Iowa games, the Minnesota-Wisconsin games, are going to be such a style of contrast of the coaches, personality-wise and social media-wise, that I, I'll be curious if actual national writers and, and, and commentators kind of get in on see on that because those are the fights that eventually we're getting back to Minnesota and we just hope it's a Minnesota segment. Eventually PJ Fleck is going to have to win those, not just on the recruiting trail, he's going to have to win those on the field. So seeing how those start out uh, you know, this fall with, with year one for him, it's going to be a real interesting dynamic given some of the bad blood that's been on the recruiting trail. But I like Wisconsin uh, still come out of that and if, uh, you know, and it, it, part of me just wants 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 to see Goldie do something crazy. So, here you go, PJ Flack. If you can find a quarterback, see if you can make it happen because you got just about everything else. There you go. So, are we going to see a rematch in Indianapolis? Is, is Penn State going to come out of the East? Do you think? I, I don't think. I, I still think it's Ohio State, and, and I think we're sleeping on on Michigan potentially a little. Uh, I, I'd be surprised if it wasn't Ohio State. I could just hope that if we're getting a rematch of that uh, of that title game from uh, from the end of the 2014 season, that it's a better game than that one was. That's yeah, all I would brutal. hope for at that point. It was like, 50- or we'll get Ohio State, or we'll get Ohio State Iowa, or Ohio State Minnesota. Was it- Let's just root for the Ohio State Minnesota Wild Pick. Let's do that. Was it 59-0? Was that the final score a few years ago? It, uh, yeah, it was. It was 58. It was not good. Ugly, yeah, ugly. All right, yeah. and uh, it'll be better than that. So, so we're penciling you in for Ohio State, Wisconsin, and uh, who do you, who do you think would win that matchup in Indianapolis? Uh, Ohio State. Yeah, not even close. Yeah. Or do you think uh, Wisconsin oh, will make a game? I, I think it'll be closer than it'll be closer than fifty nine to nothing. Okay, <laughs> I would hope so. <laughs> that's not that's not a limb to go out. Let's on never do that again. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't think I don't think it would be like that. But but uh, you could do a whole other podcast. And I'm sure you will on Urban Meyer at big games, uh, and in, in big one-off games like that. And if there are playoff stakes on the, on the line, that uh, you you don't want to be the guy on the other side. But I think the Badgers will be a better fight than that. And Ohio State's of course got something to prove this year after the uh, shutout they took down at uh, against at the hands of Clemson. So I think they're going to have a chip on their shoulder as well. I got one more. Yeah. Uh, one more prediction for you before I let you go, and that is the Big Ten player or players with the best chance to win the Heisman Trophy. And if you think that they can get uh, multiple players on the stage in New York City, go ahead and, and rattle them off. 
are we on the ten year anniversary of the last winter? I think we are. I don't, it, I don't know off the top of my head. I think it was, but but you're, it's been a while, and uh, I think the obvious ones are there. I, I I think in terms of who I predict would be there, assuming things go by the book, you're going to see Barrett on that stage if he doesn't win it, um, and that's just because of quarterback. These aren't people I would necessarily vote for down the line because I am one of the guys who had Dominican Sue as my number one guy in 2009. I'll show you that ballot. I, that was my guy. So I like non-traditional candidates, but I'm weird and wacky, so most voters aren't. So therefore, a quarterback, the best quarterback, is going to be there. Uh, so that's Barrett probably then, but by that logic, Barrett's most likely. Uh, McSorley still, uh, even though I'm curious, kind of, I don't, you know, if you, if you call it a sophomore slump, I'm sort of curious what the adjustment to him will be, although I think the, the upside's pretty good there and and they're in good shape, um, and, and then Barkley. Although for me personally, I, I for me maybe I'm thinking too much like an NFL scout. Barkley's my my favorite player to watch. I mean, I just I we, you know we joke we don't get paid you know we, we get paid to do this, but if we didn't, who would we pay to watch? Uh, and and Saquon Barkley, he's just transcendent. I mean, that, that's I, that sounds gushy because it is. I mean, just so much fun to watch. Yeah. So he would be my guy first, but I think Barrett would be the first one. I know, I know the. Uh... The combine NFL combine numbers are kind of overdone, but I think he's going to put up some just like video game numbers at the combine <laughs> next year because you see what he's doing in these offseason workouts and he's yeah. running four three forties yeah. and you know power cleaning entire cars pretty much. It's going to be it's going to be nuts. Yeah, yeah, he's sick. All right, well uh, that is all I have for you, Sean. I appreciate you jumping on with me, and um, maybe we'll uh, we'll catch up during the season if you're at media days. Definitely say hello. Yeah, that'd be great, Alex. Any time. Thanks, man. All right. Appreciate it. Take care. Really good stuff there from Sean. Next up is Scott Docterman, a longtime print sports writer in the state of Iowa and a current Iowa Hawkeyes writer for Land of Ten. He has a lot of great analysis on the Iowa Hawkeyes, and I'm going to get right to it and let Scott have the floor. Here we go. For wisdom on all things Iowa as part of this Big Ten West portion of the 2017 football season preview, I'm joined by Scott Docterman. Scott covers the Hawkeyes for Land of Ten, so be sure to check out his work at landoften.com and follow him on Twitter at Scott Docterman. Scott, welcome and thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Alex. Absolutely. And uh, and Scott, in, in my experience, just personally working at, at BTN for almost a year now, one thing that has struck me is the uh, the passion that Iowa fans have for their teams. It's it's crazy because they're one of the smaller schools in, in the Big Ten, and they have the most Twitter followers on our school accounts out of any Big Ten team. And they consistently just display that diehard fandom on social media in huge numbers. So uh, before we get started, I, I, I'm just curious with how engaged Iowa fans are with the high number of followers you have on Twitter, what percentage of your Twitter interactions with Iowa fans are positive, and uh, what percentage turn into disagreements or arguments? <laughs> I would say the majority, if not most, are very positive. They're very passionate. I think they, they're realistic. But, you know, like most fans, they, they want a higher profile for their team and, and better results. Uh, the, the one time where it can turn south, and this is probably true of just about any other program, is uh, when there is a, a disappointing loss, a lot of times a loss to a rival, or a loss to a team that uh, they shouldn't lose to. So 
that's what we see sometimes on social media platforms, but almost exclusively. My interactions over the last eight or nine years on Twitter have been very positive. Yeah, I've always just found it really remarkable how um, you know how engaged they are and 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 how big that following is. But uh, anyway, let's get into some football-specific discussion, and uh, I want to begin with a, a big-picture look at the conference and the Big Ten West in particular before we get into the uh, the nitty-gritty analysis of the Hawkeyes. So um, with the way the Big Ten West is set up, uh, in my opinion, it seems like three or four teams have a chance to win the West and go to, go to Indy to play for a Big Ten title. I'd say Wisconsin is the favorite, but I, I did want to get your opinion on how many contenders you think there are in the Big Ten West in 2017. Uh, realistically, I think there are four um, just on their own prowess as, as football programs, and I would I would agree with you about Wisconsin. I think Northwestern is right there, uh, shortly behind, or real close to north to uh, Wisconsin, and then Nebraska and Iowa I think are, are right behind. And and really, to me, it's not so much about who's better on the field because I think that's something that uh, could be very close among those four. I think what it is is it's a kind of a figment of the schedule. Uh, that, to me, is, is probably the most challenging part for Iowa and for Nebraska. Um, and then that is, you know, they both have to play Ohio State and Penn State, and, and Wisconsin does not. And even though Iowa plays both of those teams at home, uh, that's still very difficult. Those are di- very difficult matchups. So what we're, what we're going to see this year and probably into the future is uh, who you avoid is, is going to uh, pay uh, – play a big role in how you perform uh, in the West Division. So um, if they, let's say that they just had a division-only record that, to, to advance to the Big Ten championship game, then I, I would say that all four teams are close to equal, with maybe Wisconsin being a slight favorite. Uh, but with that schedule, with what Wisconsin plays, I, I'd have to put the Badgers as a very strong favorite. Sure. And uh, despite – maybe some of the uh, difficulties in the schedule. I-, I think that as long as Iowa is in this West division and, and, and as long as Coach Ferentz keeps fielding solid teams, I do think that a viable path will to Indianapolis will always be there as long as the layout remains as it is, kind of how it's been for the last uh, five years or so. And, and it does look to be another solid Iowa team. Um, just They're two years removed from, from the Rose Bowl and one year removed from 8-5, uh, and five, and that was, a, a, I believe, fourth consecutive bowl game. So would you agree that despite some of those scheduling um, you know, difficulties that you mentioned, there seems to be a viable path as long as the, the division, the West Division dynamics remain similar to how they are today? Yeah, I believe so. I mean, Iowa, Iowa knows what it is. It, I'd say Iowa and Wisconsin are the most secure programs in the West Division and probably um, in the Big Ten in that, that they understand themselves, they understand what they can do and how successful they can be. And as long as Iowa is strong along the line of scrimmage and has a couple of playmakers on the back seven on defense and, and at running back on offense, the Hawkeyes are going to be in many games. I mean, technically they're as good as any program in the country. Uh, they have, you know, tough-minded, hard-nosed guys that, uh, you know, execute um, at the line of scrimmage. So Iowa is going to be there. You know, they're not an easy out for anybody. Um, and then if they can extend plays, you know, two years ago with a guy like C.J. Beathard, a quarterback playing at a high level, um, and a little luck, uh, you know, yeah, they can always be there. And, and I think they're always a threat in the West Division, even the years that they don't win it. 
Um, you know, like last year, you know, they beat Nebraska 40 to 10. Uh, you know, they had a slugfest with Wisconsin and lost 17 to 9. Uh, you know, so they've, they've got a competitive team in that division year in and year out. Yeah, and they knocked off a Michigan team in a, in a thriller. And that was, I would, I would say, the high point of their season. Um, but let's get into some of the personnel now uh, for Iowa, and we'll start at quarterback. Uh, C.J. Beathard is gone. He, he's in the NFL with the 49ers, obviously. And uh, he had some pretty good success as a steady presence under center over the last several seasons at Iowa. So uh, lay it out for me. Who's got next at quarterback at Iowa, and h- how do you think they'll do under a new uh, new offensive coordinator in uh, Brian Ferentz? Right now it's a full-out competition between Nathan Stanley and uh, Tyler Wiegers. And two years ago, in 2015, Wiegers was a freshman backup under C.J. Beathard, the number two. Last year, Nathan Stanley beat him out as a true freshman in August and got the number two team reps all year. He played a little bit uh, sparingly last year. Wiegers did in 2015. So uh, what they decided to do was open up the competition in in the uh, winter and in the spring. And as of the end of spring, it's a pretty much an even draw. I mean, they have, a new, as you mentioned, a new offensive coordinator in Brian Ferentz. Iowa's going to probably try to get the ball down the field a little bit more, uh, you know, with bigger wide receivers. So, um, you know, throughout the summer, I think they've wanted to see that kind of progress. And from everything I've gathered, it's still relatively even. So I guess by, you know, the midpoint of training camp, they're going to have to make a call, at least on what they want to do for week one and, in a, you know, a couple of weeks into the season and then revisit it if things start to struggle. So if I was to, you know, declare a slight edge, I'd probably go with Stan, uh, with Stanley just simply because he was in that number two role last year and looked relaxed when he got into the action. Uh, but that said, I wouldn't undersell, uh, you know, Tyler Wiegers, who was a former four-star recruit not that long ago. Sure, and that'll definitely be something to keep an eye on as we uh, move through the summer and into the season here. But when I think Iowa football, I think of the ground and pound, uh, running the football behind good offensive lines. And last year was no different. They had uh, a couple of thousand-yard rushers. They had LaShawn Daniels, who is now gone, and he split time with Akron Wadley, who really turned some heads with, a, uh, like I said, a thousand-yard season of, of his own, and he'll be back. And um, they also picked up grad transfer James Butler from Nevada, who had uh, over a thousand yards rushing, and he'll complement Wadley in the backfield. So am I correct in assuming that this backfield will be uh, one of the team's biggest strengths next season? Yes, it will be for sure. I mean, Akron Wadley is a, a different kind of running back that Iowa's had, and that's why he works so well with LaShawn Daniels in, in tandem. I mean, you know, he's a he makes guys miss, and he's explosive and very quick and tough to tackle. And, uh, you know, you saw several explosive runs from Akron Wadley last year. He hit uh, both Purdue and Nebraska for 75 yarders. Uh, you know, he won the games against uh, at Rutgers and at Minnesota with fourth quarter long touchdown runs. Uh, he had 73% of the offense against Michigan in that 14-13 upset. He was the best player on the field all night. Uh, you know, he, he ran for, you know, again, more than 1,000 yards, 1,081 with 10 touchdowns. But, you know, in the Big Ten, he was the only player – he had the highest yards per carry of anybody who did run for 1,000 yards at 6.4. So I think he's an, un- an overlooked player, very explosive. And, and actually, he weighed his options with going to the NFL. I mean, Mel Kuyper Jr. had him, I believe, as the number five running back if he wanted, decided to leave. Uh, he opted to stay. And then uh, with James Butler, I mean, you know, here's a guy who had you know similar numbers 
at Nevada. You know, he's five foot nine, two hundred and ten pounds. He's a little thicker than Wadley. Uh, he makes guys miss. PFF had him as the guy who made the most tacklers miss last year, just ahead of Saquon Barkley. He was a uh, you know thirteen hundred yard guy. Uh, you know, thirteen uh, touchdown run, uh, runs on the ground, and both of them were very explosive in catching the ball. I mean, they both had caught more than 30 passes. So they're going to be looked to to do a lot of different things, running the ball, possibly being on the field at the same time, but definitely being involved in a passing game, which, I guess we mentioned, you know, a very inexperienced uh, quarterback situation and then also a wide receiver. Sure, and, and uh, of course, a huge part of how successful those running backs can be. Uh, some talented offensive line, isn't that right? Yeah, all but eight starts are returning from last year's cut of the year, so then they were able to compensate for that. But, I mean, I, I'd arguably, I'd say Sean Welsh, uh, Boone Myers, and Ike Bucker are three-year starters at tackle, guys who have had a handful of starts as well. So this unit won the Joe Moore Award as the best line in the country, being out of Ohio State and Alabama, really a, a solid unit you know, run blocking. And I think you're going to see what that experience is up. So uh, early on, you know, against teams like Wyoming, Iowa State, and North Texas, who weren't very good at downhill and be very physical at the point of attack, and Iowa has the running backs to make them hurt. The area you want talent and experience coming back is the offensive line if you had to pick any unit, so that's a favor. And, uh, and speaking of talent and experience, the defense will be led this year by linebacker Josie Jewell, who I know you're very high on, and, and for good reason. I, uh, I believe you, you told me before we got on here that he might be the best linebacker Iowa's ever had under Kirk Ferentz, which uh, that's certainly certainly high accolades. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they've had great ones like Chad Greenway and and uh, Pat Anger and, you know, James Morris a few years ago, Christian Kirksey and Anthony Hitchens during the NFL. Uh, but for what Iowa does and what Iowa is, Josie Jewell is the perfect story, and he's the perfect player. He is tenacious, you know, a very tough-minded guy, a leader. He became the first permanent team captain as a sophomore in school history, or at least under Ference. Uh, You know, he brought him to Chicago last year, which has never happened before, bringing a junior. Um, You know, he's a guy who commands respect, and he's been a starter since, you know, midway through his freshman year. Uh, You know, and the most interesting part of his story is where he came from. I mean, Josie Jewell in high school wasn't a very highly recruited athlete. When he was at DeCore, he wasn't very fast. Uh, He led his team to a state championship, but teams overlooked him. He was considering going to the hometown Division three school, Luther College, uh, before Iowa stepped in late with, an, with a scholarship offer. He was one of the guys that, that Reese Morgan on Iowa staff really identified as a tough-nosed, hard-nosed guy. Uh, they didn't know they were, where they were going to put him. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, foot speed was kind of the issue. So they thought, well, maybe if he doesn't have enough lateral quickness, he can play fullback. Uh, maybe he could play on the other side of the ball at linebacker, which is where they decided to start him. And, uh, you know, right away they figured out that, you know, this guy's got an incredible work ethic and toughness and has all the quickness that you need at that position. And he's been, you know, as good as Iowa's had at that position. And, you know, I don't think that's saying, you know, anything derogatory towards, you know, as I mentioned, Abdul Hotch, Chad Greenway, Pat Anger, you know, Chris Kirksey, whoever. But, but he is in that category. And last year he was a Buckus finalist. And I fully anticipate if he's healthy, he'll be there and, and more this year. Sure. He kind of encompasses everything I think about when I think about that identity of Iowa football. Um, so Jewel will be back. And uh, 
However, Iowa still has some big holes to fill from some departures, most notably uh, NFL guys and Desmond King, Jaleel Johnson. So who do you think can step in and fill those specific voids and then also uh, pick up the slack in other areas in that defensive unit? Yeah, replacing Desmond King is, is a huge issue probably from the team, and it will be for a while. I mean, he was an all-time great. I would put him and Bob Sanders together as the two best players in the secondary Iowa's had under Ferentz. So, uh, you know, one of the roles goes to Manny Rugamba. You know, he was a true freshman last year, and he really stepped up and was Big Ten freshman of the week against uh, Michigan. He broke up a pass in the end zone. He intercepted a pass late, which helped, uh, you know, secure kind of Iowa's comeback victory. Uh, the other position is uh, right now manned by Joshua Jackson, who's, who's moved from both sides of the ball while he's been at Iowa. But, you know, now as a junior, you know, he kind of solidified it and, and started the bowl game against Florida. So I think he's going to be the number two, and he hasn't done anything to lose that position. Uh, but Iowa's recruited six different defensive backs, so I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, you know, one of them gets on the field at least as a nickel, if not, you know, makes that jump and, you know, potentially challenges Jackson for the second starting spot. And then uh, Jaleel Johnson was a real beast, you know, started his last 27 games, led the Big Ten among defensive tackles with seven and a half sacks, uh, you know, was the Big Ten defensive player of the week against Michigan, had a safety, had a sack, nine tackles. So they're not, they don't have a player who can replace him adequately at that position. Uh, but they're going to try to, you know, make it work with a couple of younger players and, Cedric Lattimore and Brady Reef, who's the younger brother of Riley Reef, who was a you know All American tackle at Iowa, you know, a handful of years ago. Now, where they are they are strong up front is on the edge. They return their top three defensive uh, ends, and all of them are juniors or younger. Seems like they've been there for a while, and they bring in a five star defensive end and AJ Epineza, who I anticipate will play quite a bit this year. So, uh, you know, what they miss a little bit in t- inside. They make four uh, up four on the outside. And then at linebacker, uh, you know, joining Josie Jewell are uh, Bo Bauer and Ben Neiman. They're both two-year starters. So this is a unit that's probably got more starts than any other linebacking unit in the country. All three are seniors, so they're veterans. So Iowa has enough uh, depth and talent in, in the defense to really keep, you know, competitive. Uh, you know, you, you do, you've got to be concerned a little bit with if they face a you know, a top flight, you know, passing team like they will actually in their first game against Wyoming. But they've got enough good players where I think they're going to be uh, competitive long term. Sure. And in this discussion, we've hit on a lot of the strengths of this Iowa team. And we've touched on a few weaknesses as well. But but what is your biggest concern with the 2017 Hawkeyes if things were to go south? It have to be on offense and it have to be the passing game. I mean, uh, you know, last year when Matt Vandenberg was lost for – the final, you know, nine games, and, and he actually got a red shirt out of it. Uh, they could not find anybody that had any kind of separation at all at wide receiver. And then, you know, Vandenberg did return, and you know, he had 65 catches just in 2015. But you know, their two other, you know, two of their most con- biggest contributors last year, German Smith and Jay Shield, left the program. So Iowa is really inexperienced at that position. If Vandenberg can stay healthy, he's twice broke his foot since September. Uh, then, then Iowa will be okay uh, passing the ball because they've got a you know, junior college transfer and, and Mickey usually they like quite a bit. And then they've got a couple of talented freshmen that I think have a chance to play right away. But if not, if you know, whether Vandenberg doesn't stay healthy or if the quarterback situation is inconsistent, it could be a real grind. I mean, you know, they can run the ball on anybody. Uh, but you know, when you're playing in Ohio State, Penn State, Wisconsin, 
uh, you know, Northwestern, they, you know, that that's going to be tough for them to, to be able to, you know, consistently churn out first downs without a, a passing attack. So I think if that happens, they're going to see Iowa compete but ultimately lose a handful of games that, just because they're not able to advance the ball through the air consistently. All right. Well, Iowa, it seems like as far as, uh, at least in recent history, has always remained competitive. So I don't, I don't doubt that they'll be in a lot of games, and, and uh, I'm sure they'll – pull some upsets like they had last like they did last year with Michigan and uh the beatdown they put on Nebraska. So, um before I let you go, Scott, this has been a lot of a lot of great stuff you've had to offer here, but I am going to put you on the spot to make some predictions and I'm going to do this with all the Land of 10 writers that we're going to talk to and uh, have on this Big 10 Media Day um podcast edition. So, the first prediction I want you to make is uh a sleeper in the Big 10 West. Who do you think that maybe people aren't talking about as much that could, um, you know, end up in, in Indianapolis this year to uh, take on whoever comes out of the East? The sleeper, I would have to go with Northwestern. They've got a veteran team, uh, you know, a great running back in Justin Jackson, you know, a veteran quarterback now, and Clayton Thorson, who uh, improved over his career. So I, I would say Northwestern is a, is a sleeper team in the West, or possibly Iowa, but, you know, that schedule just prevents me from you know, really going out on a limb with the Hawkeyes. Um, in the East Division, uh, you know, uh, that's such a tough division to, to pick anybody but chalk. But, uh, you know, I guess Michigan would be probably as good of a sleeper as anybody with only six returning starters, a ton of talent, a very good coach. I would probably put Michigan as the, the sleeper team from the East. However, I don't expect either team to win the division. All right, so how about a Big Ten West winner? I know you said Wisconsin was probably your favorite. Are, are you sticking with them to uh, go to Indy this year? Yes, I am. I think Wisconsin's got as much talent or more than anybody else in the division. Plus, uh, you know, the schedule is just advantageous for them. They, again, they void, um, you know, all the eastern behemoths except Michigan. I think they are um, the team that's going to be able to pull out any kind of tiebreaker simply because of, uh, who they don't play as much as who they do. All right, and how about out of the East? Who is Wisconsin going to face? And uh, like you mentioned, in a division like the East where Michigan's a sleeper, that should tell you how stacked they are. <laughs> I think this is going to be an incredibly competitive division. Uh, it could be another tiebreaker situation, and I'll pro- I'll go with uh, Penn State again to repeat. They didn't lose a, very, a lot of you know quality players. They returned two of the most dynamic players in the in the backfield, and Trace McSorley and, and Saquon Barkley, you know, losing Chris Godwin was, would hurt, but I think they've got enough players returning, especially on that defense, that, that's really going to make things tough for people. I think they lose a game, but I think they're the best team in the East. So I'm going to go with a, a Big Ten championship game rematch with the Nittany Lions against the Badgers. All right, and in that rematch, who do you have coming out on top? Is it going to be a, uh, a repeat for, for Penn State? Yeah, I think it would be a uh, repeat. I think they just... Too many playmakers on the offensive side of the ball, and you know both teams are pretty good defensively. But uh, but when you can make a few more plays in, in this world in this game today, um, you've got to go with the offense. So I would go with the Nittany Lions repeating uh, with a win over the Badgers. All right, one final prediction from you, Scott. Who is the uh, Big Ten? Or you can do multiple players here, but who out of the Big Ten has the best chance to win the Heisman Trophy, or at least be on stage in New York City um, in the winter? 
I got to go with Saquon Barkley. I think he's the best player returning in the Big Ten. And uh, as I mentioned, you know, I think he's going to be on the Big Ten championship team. And, you know, he had a pretty good stage last year, winning the championship, going to the Rose Bowl. Uh, you know, so I think, again, that, that he's got the best chance and the best credentials to get there. And, uh, you know, and, and if they do win the Big Ten championship and get in the playoff, and, and uh, uh, you know, I, I would give him – I'd make him the favorite to win the highest event in December. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good pick. And uh, who knows, we might see two Penn State Nittany Lions on that stage with – Trace McSorley with another breakout year from him. But uh, anyway, Scott, like I said, ton of great stuff. Thanks so much for coming on and being a part of this preview series. And uh, keep in touch, and let's do it again soon. Thanks, Alex. I appreciate the time. All right, take care. Scott obviously has a scoop on all things Iowa, a lot of really good stuff from him. And for our final guest, I'm going to turn to Aaron Sorensen. Erin covers Nebraska for Land of Ten, and she's been dialed into the Husker program for at least a decade after graduating from Nebraska back in 2010. So it's time for some Husker talk, and we have the general sports stuff as well. Let's get right into it. It's Take Ten with Erin Sorensen. For insight from our westernmost conference member as part of this Big Ten West portion of the 2017 football season preview, I'm joined by Aaron Sorensen. Aaron covers Nebraska for Land of Ten, so be sure to check out all our work at landoften.com and follow her on Twitter at Aaron Sorensen. What's up, Aaron? Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Definitely. Um, first off, before we get in-depth on, on Big Ten and Nebraska football, I have to ask about some uh, some Twitter backlash you received a few days ago. From my understanding, just from kind of looking at it at a glance, it looks like you did an all-time ranking of, of Nebraska players from Land of Ten, and, and you faced a little bit of heat for it, didn't you? Yeah, and I, you know, I talked after the fact with various people who, who felt, you know, differently about the list, whether they felt someone deserved to be higher or lower on the list, not on the list, you know, just about every which way to Sunday, but... Nebraska fans have about 50 players that they would want on a top 25. So that's not a bad problem, but it does create quite it creates quite an issue when you're trying to narrow it down. And so I've said, you know, if I were to ever kind of do this again, it would be really interesting to break it down a little bit differently. You know, you could go by offense versus defense, you know, before 1962 and after 1962. Uh, someone even brought up a great point of there's a difference between best and greatest in the way that like you know the greatest athlete is sort of different than the best because you can factor different things in so there's a lot of really good feedback a couple of people took it pretty personally but honestly I think I had more fun with it and it was it was a good opportunity to talk to people during the off season you know we're all sitting around waiting for football season so if nothing else it got us all talking right and and that's the thing about player rankings is that they're they're really fun to do and most people enjoy reading them, but you'll definitely get some backlash. So uh, for everyone There's out no there, way to make them right. <laughs> yeah, so for everyone out there listening, definitely uh, go to Erin's Twitter account and uh, blow up her, her Twitter mentions and tell her how wrong she is. That'll be, <laughs> yeah, that'll be I'm fun. sure you can find something. I'm sure there's something that I can put out there on Twitter that people – usually it's Chipotle versus Qdoba. That's usually <laughs> the, uh, the one people are the most upset about. And don't talk to uh, – Iowa fans about that because they'll say Pancheros. If you, that's like oh, the Iowa no. thing. <laughs> we used to have a Pancheros in Nebraska, and I don't know what happened to it. That's like their big. Uh, I don't know. I think it was founded in Iowa, but um, 
on a couple trips to Iowa, that was like the big sponsor, and it's the big uh, burrito spot downtown. So I know Iowa fans love their Pancheros. Well, we can all get in. Well, that'll be our big heated debate all season is, Mexi- you know, fast food Mexican. Exactly. All right, but uh, let's get into some Huskers football talk. Um, of course, it's Mike Riley's third season, and uh, while the record was much better at 9-4 and four in his second season than it was in his first when he went 6-7, and seven, uh, the vibe within the fan base still seemed kind of uneasy since the Huskers really stumbled toward the finish at the end. So my question for you is, what do you think are some realistic expectations for Nebraska in year three under Mike Riley? It's kind of a year where this sounds strange because it is year three under Mike Riley, but this feels like a transition year to me in some ways because when Mike Riley was hired and he and his staff came on board, they had a quarterback in Tommy Armstrong who is not the type of quarterback that they would typically choose for the type of offense that they would want to run under, you know, Danny Langsdorf and under Riley. And then you just had a lot of different pieces that just weren't quite, like, Things weren't quite firing on all cylinders, I think, the way that they wanted them to. Now, this is the first year they have a majority of their players, and, you know, they've got the quarterbacks that they want. They're installing the type of defense that they, you know, have said that they wanted with the 3-4 defense. They uh, are building up certain areas that had been previous, you know, they're talking about how to install, you know, like I said, when you have this type of quarterback in Tanner Lee, it's the run game sort of takes a back seat, but Riley wants a run game. So there's a lot of moving pieces right now that it feels like all along this was sort of a rebuilding year. The last two years probably felt that way too, but this year is especially interesting from that perspective. And I actually just did like a best and worst case scenarios piece because of this. And it feels like there's a lot of opportunities for Nebraska to have the best case scenarios happen, but then also have the worst-case scenarios happen. And it's been a you know, it's been a bit of a rocky off-season so far between, um, you know, there have been a couple of, you know, off, off-field off incidents uh, with some players who potentially could be, you know, suspended for a game or however many that ultimately ends up being. You have injuries that will impact how things work on the field. Then, unfortunately, you know, the loss of Bob Elliott shifted some things on the, you know, on the defense with Scott Booker now coaching safety. So there's been a lot of things that have happened off the field this offseason that I just keep using it where I say I know it shouldn't be, but it feels like a transition year for Mike Riley. So hopefully people can stay patient because that's what this year really might need is some patience. Sure. And, I mean, at the very least, we saw that, Riley wasn't content with what was going on because he's overhauled the defense. He fired his old, I'm sorry, old defensive coordinator and is bringing a new defensive coordinator in Bob Diaco. So what are your impressions of the new 3-4 defense that Diaco's installing? And uh, do you think it'll turn Nebraska's defense around? Because I know there was a lot of, uh, a lot of impatience with, the, with the, how the defense was performing in recent years. Oh, you know, it's, it's hard to say because... I'm familiar, I, I grew up around a 4-3 defense, you know, watching, you know, Nebraska, especially, you know, over the last so many years, it's been a 4-3 defense, and I know that they've they've had other, they've run different types of defense over history, but I'm saying for myself personally, personally I'm more familiar with a 4-3, so this has been a very uh, good opportunity for me to kind of learn a whole different new defense, and I'm sure that's sort of how the players feel. You know, I... 
the best way for me to put this is there's a lot of potential with a 3-4 defense. Bob Yako was extremely successful with it at Notre Dame. Uh, just looking in 2012 alone, his defense only allowed two rushing touchdowns. They were ranked second in the nation in scoring defense, red zone touchdowns allowed, and passing yards per completion. And the, and the Irish that season finished seventh in total defense. So if you can realistically bring that to Nebraska, that's awesome. That's going to put Nebraska in a really, really good position. It's going to, you know, sort of reestablish the black shirts the way I think fans want them to be. For myself, the question is, does Nebraska have the pieces this season to make that work? So you have Nick Stoltenberg, who's moving into that nose tackle position. He's been putting on weight, really working hard at that. He's likely going to be anchored by the Davis twins. And you hope that that's exactly what Nebraska needs, but you just don't know for sure. So I think there's a lot of potential with the 3-4. We just aren't going to know what that really looks like until Arkansas State. And I know I've heard some rumblings that maybe they won't really unveil it until Oregon. And if that's the case, that'll be interesting as well. But the potential is there. It's just now a matter of do the pieces Nebraska have fit the puzzle. Sure. And then in the first year of overhauling a system, you're probably going to have some growing pains. But um, I think the shift to a three four it's definitely more of a, a long term you know plan that that hopefully can bring some more consistent success to that side of the ball at nebraska but I agree. um yeah, but I wanted to flip to the offensive side of the ball where uh, a very intriguing situation will obviously be the quarterback position. You mentioned that uh Tanner Lee transfer Tanner Lee will be the guy to beat probably at quarterback, and this is just my opinion, but since Nebraska has joined the big ten, it's kind of seemed like. Huskers fans have always loved their quarterbacks. They've kind of been staples of the offense, very talented guys like Taylor Martinez and Tommy Armstrong. But that below the surface, there's always been kind of this frustration kind of bubbling up. And and I think it was uh, a lot of it had to do with the their ability to throw downfield accurately. Other times it was the susceptibility to injury. It seemed like those guys could never stay on the field for long stretches. So... Just in my opinion, it seems like Nebraska fans are looking to kind of a, to, uh, a steady, solid passing game and a quarterback who can execute that kind of offense. So my question for you is, what do you think Nebraska's offense will look like going forward under presumably Tanner Lee, and will it be something that Nebraska fans will enjoy watching? Uh, it depends on what Nebraska fan you talk to. It was interesting you said, you know, I think, you know, Nebraska fans do want consistency, but there's a large group of Nebraska fans that have been deemed what we call the run the ball guy, right. who no matter what happens are just yelling about running the ball. And yes, that like, that like tough running game football is important. And I think Riley does want to find a balance with the running game. You really do need to find a balance with the running game. But Tanner Lee is a pro-style quarterback. You can see the type of quarterbacks that they're recruiting with Tristan Jebbia and then the kind of quarterback that Patrick O'Brien is. These are not Tommy Armstrong kind of guys. They are not going to be lining up behind that offensive line and buying them time because they're more mobile. These are guys that are going to, like I said, they're more pro-style. So they're going to need their offensive line to really hold strong because if they don't, they're not buying you that extra time. So I think Nebraska fans who really want to see Nebraska run the football of like the glory days in the past, I don't think that's what this offense is going to look like under Mike Riley. I think there's a lot of potential for Tanner Lee, Patrick O'Brien, and the future Tristan Jebbia to be these real effective gunslingers if they have the wide receivers that they need, 
the tight ends that they need, and then if the offensive line is strong. There's so many questions for me around that offensive line that it's hard for me to know what that offense is really going to look like until we see if that if that offensive line has evolved over the offseason. But if it has, and they can really establish like a, a good running game and they can make connections and then Tanner Lee can really make connections with his, or his uh, wide receivers, I think you're going to see a lot more passing this season, which will make some people happy and it will tick some people off. So there's one way or another, someone's not going to be happy with the way the offense is run. But in my opinion, if it's effective and it's scoring a touchdown, great. Sure. And I think that staple guys like Martinez and, and Armstrong were, you know, beloved Huskers and, and were obviously, uh, fans are obviously very appreciative of them. And then you get into a little bit of a give or take because the first time that, you know, Tanner Lee or whoever, can't escape the pocket and, and get sacked, people are going to say, well, why can't he, you know, move out of the pocket like our previous quarterbacks have been able to do? So it's always, you know, you always uh, are yearning for... The grass for kind of is the, always greener. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what, that's what I was looking for there. Um, but let's, <laughs> let's, get into, uh, let's get into Nebraska's schedule a little bit because looking it over, there are definitely some interesting quirks. Um, mm-hmm. first of all, yeah, the first anomaly is a Friday night trip to Illinois in the, uh, in the last week of September. That'll be part of the new lineup of Friday night games that some members of the Big Ten Conference have agreed to over the next several years. So I want to get your thoughts on playing on Friday nights, and I also want to check the pulse of the Nebraska fan, average Nebraska fan that you're so in tune to, and, and, and their reaction, the fan base's reaction to it, because it's something Nebraska's going to be doing uh, every few seasons now, and I wanted to know your thoughts and, and what the fan base thinks about it. Yeah, I think this year will be a little bit interesting because it's an away game. I think that will temper a little bit of the uh, emotion behind it, if you will. The one that really – what really sort of sparked some conversation over the last week is the athletic director, Sean Eichhorst, made a comment that he is planning on Nebraska having – a home Friday night football game every three years. In in Nebraska, Friday night football is not to the level that, you know, Texas Friday night football is, but it's it's pretty it's pretty important. It's it's really up there. I'd say from Right, high school football, in, right? Right, high yeah. school football. I I am somebody that in my free time I also help coach a high school cheerleading team. So like I know how important those Friday night games are and that has been a huge bone of contention with Nebraska fans is what about these Friday night football games? The short answer is a lot of these teams are going to be forced to have to move their games either a Thursday or a Saturday to accommodate this because I think there's a group of people that think Nebraska's sellout streak will be in jeopardy because of this, which I don't think is the case. I think who will ultimately suffer are those high school football games. And so in my opinion, once every three years, these, once every three years, these high school teams are going to have to move their games to Thursday, Saturday, maybe to another day to kind of accommodate that, especially, you know, for some of these kids who maybe are looking at taking recruiting trips down to Nebraska for different reasons. So it will have its downside in that situation, and also it will affect people who, you know, maybe don't get off work until a little bit later in the evening. I know the Illinois game at Illinois this year is at 7 p.m., so that does allow a little time for people to get off of work. But you think a normal 7 p.m. game on a Saturday in Lincoln, Nebraska, people are starting to tailgate by mid-morning. Sure. So 
that changes things a little bit. Do people take that day off of work? If they don't have the ability to take off of work, does that now eliminate them from being able to be there? It's, it's sort of going to be an interesting thing to watch. I think the fact that it's an away game this year will sort of, like I said, temper the, you know, the emotions this year around it. The first time it's at Memorial Stadium, it, it will become a big, big deal and talking point. Sure. I know, yeah, high school coaches kind of across the conference kind of grumbled about it. Honestly, I think it's something, like you said, that won't turn out to be that big of a deal because ultimately it's it's one week where, you know, either a recruit might miss a visit or they can move the game to another day of the week. And I think overall the exposure um, that schools are getting out of this being the only show in town, the only Friday night game on the docket nationally, I think is going to be a positive overall for, uh, for a lot of these schools, um, especially one like Illinois who – you know, not many eyes are on Illinois football if there's other games happening on Saturday, but they're going to be the main event on uh, September that's, 29th. And that's what I think is hard for some of the schools and the programs in the Big Ten to swallow is you have a lot of schools like Nebraska and Ohio State and Michigan who are going, well, we don't really need the exposure. We don't right. really need to be put on a Friday night, but you're sort of playing nice for the, the littler um, not the littler programs, but the smaller programs that don't get that kind of exposure on a weekly basis. You're playing nice so that they can get that kind of exposure too. And that's like exactly what you said is, yeah, maybe at the end of the day, Nebraska doesn't feel like they need to be on a Friday night, but they are in a sense doing Illinois a favor. And, you know, if Illinois can show up that Friday night and put on a really, really solid game, it it benefits it benefits everyone in that sense. Maybe not Nebraska if they want to like beat them handedly, but like it does give Illinois the exposure it wants. It gives the Big Ten the exposure it wants, and Nebraska is really only looking at having to deal with this every three years. So it's really a matter of is it worth getting that upset over? And you know, we talked about ranking players. There's always something to get upset over. <laughs> right, right. And I went to Illinois, so maybe we'll have to have a friendly wager in that game when it comes around. Oh, you better not! You better not beat Nebraska. I'm I I'm saying there's a good shot of Nebraska being five and zero by the time Wisconsin rolls to rolls to town. So if it's Illinois that makes them four and one, I will come and find you. <laughs> well, when I was a, <laughs> when I was a student there, um, I think it was the first time Nebraska visited Illinois, and that was in 2014. And um, Illinois beat Nebraska, and it was a pretty. First of all, it was a pretty, I think it was Riley's first year, and it was a, it was a big uh, big deal beating Nebraska for Illini fans, I know, and it was kind of a sore spot for Nebraska fans because that was not a game they were expected to lose. Yep. Oh, that was quite the season for Nebraska. I I can I, – I lived through plenty of press boxes, and it was quite the experience. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Um, yes. But, yeah, after that Illinois game, uh, just a week after, things get considerably tougher – with Nebraska taking on Wisconsin and then Ohio State on back-to-back weekends. And that's got to be one of the most brutal back-to-back matchups for any Big Ten team this year on any of their schedules. Uh, the silver lining is they will both be in Lincoln at Memorial Stadium. And I think these games really have a chance to define the direction of Nebraska's season because, you know, if they win both, obviously they're flying high. If they split them, still in good shape. But if they lose both, then – you know, some of that doubt might start to creep in again. So I'm curious as to what you think Nebraska's chances are of winning one or both of those games against Wisconsin and Ohio State. 
Well, I think 2016 is probably the best indicator of what is possible. When you look back on that schedule last year, it was Nebraska had to travel to Wisconsin and then immediately turn around and travel to Ohio State. It was very um, that was a very difficult two weeks to be a reporter on the team too because it was like you didn't get home, you got home and then basically returning back around. So I think, like you said, Nebraska is probably very grateful to have both of them in Lincoln this year. The the travel last year, I think, definitely did take its toll between Wisconsin and Ohio State. Not saying that's why Ohio State beat Nebraska so handedly, but I do think it didn't help the fact that Nebraska had to immediately turn around after Wisconsin. And Nebraska only lost to Wisconsin in overtime in 2016. And so for me, I feel like if Nebraska is going to split one of those games, it's it, the chances of beating one of them is probably really significant to beat Wisconsin. Not significant, I shouldn't say, but there's a better, stronger chance of beating Wisconsin. But Nebraska has, has had a victory over Ohio State at home. I mean, that was quite a few years ago, and it was sort of, you know, unexpected. But that could always happen again. There's a reason we always say anything can happen any given Sunday in that sense, using it for a Saturday. But anything is possible. Uh if I had to pick, though, I would definitely lean toward Nebraska beating Wisconsin. I think if they can beat Wisconsin, go into that Ohio State game hyped up, they may not beat Ohio State, but I don't think that they will get defeated 62-3 to unless there's just a significant amount of injury. So regardless, I see a better outcome for those two games than what happened last year. Yeah, there will definitely be three interesting weeks back-to-back-to-back to watch with the Friday night game and then those two tough matchups at home. Um, and I, I don't want to talk Nebraska's schedule without discussing the infamous $5 bits of broken chair trophy. So, <laughs> so if what you're happened Nebra- to it? Yeah, exactly. So if you're a Nebraska or a Minnesota fan, you probably know exactly what I'm referring to. Um, if you're not, listen up. It's the trophy that essentially started on Twitter when uh, Minnesota's mascot, Goldie Gopher, Twitter account, proposed the idea to Faux Pelini, which is the fake Twitter account of Bo Pelini. And essentially the bet was if one of them won, $5 would change hands. But if the other end of the, the, the bet won, the winner got to smash, uh, smash them over the head with a wooden chair. So that turned into the $5 Bits of Broken Chair trophy. I think it's the only social media generated trophy that I can think of. And uh, Goldie... The gopher actually made the trophy come to life. So it was mm-hmm. a real tro- real trophy that was exchanged after the Minnesota-Nebraska game for a couple of years. However, the trophy was not exchanged after last year's game. Like you said, where is it? Nobody knows. It wasn't even in the stadium. And then when people were wondering where it was, uh, the official response from both schools was not really a response at all. They kind of stopped acknowledging the trophy's existence. So, Aaron, you're an wow. insider – I got to know, it, what have you heard about the $5 Bits of Broken Chair trophy? Is it, is it ever coming back? It was. The, the one thing that this is actually a little, I think, people, it, it sort of flew under the radar, actually. It was in the stadium last year, but it was with the mascot, the Goldie, okay. Gopher, the Goldie the Gopher mascot. The question is, did the exchange ever happen with Nebraska? And if it did, where did it go from that point? So there seems to be this little, like, missing piece and like the you know the like <laughs> in the time of this in like the whole um calendar of events when right. it comes to this trophy of what happened after that because there were some photos taken 
of the Minnesota mascot holding it in the stadium last year or at Nebraska last year because that's yeah. and now they travel up to Minnesota. So the question is, did it get left in Nebraska? Did it get thrown in a dumpster? And I think that this is one of those things where I hope that some kind of agreement can be reached between Minnesota and the University of Nebraska for what to do with it. If it still exists, if it's sitting in a storage room somewhere, somebody has it, I hope that there's some kind of agreement that can be met, whether it's, you know, allowing the student section to take it and pass it back and forth, or maybe you hand it over and away to the fans. I don't know exactly how you would, you know, I don't want to think personally about the logistics, but I think that, you know, the Big Ten has introduced plenty of trophies to Nebraska since it, you know, joined the Big Ten, and they will all evolve over time, but what some of the best trophies in history, when you think about, you know, a bell or the spittoon or, you know, a pig, when you think of these things that were the, the really, they're the famous trophies in history, they didn't get created because somebody slapped a sponsorship on a trophy and they made it and started splitting it between two schools. So this was sort of one of those organic moments where a trophy, for better or for worse, was created. So it, it would be, in my opinion, in the best interest of the Big Ten and both schools to figure out how to make this trophy work because the fans of both schools embraced it, the mascots were having fun with it, I think when something like that can happen organically, find a way to make it work. If it's a matter of maybe they didn't want Bo Pelini's photo on the bottom of the chair anymore, fine. <laughs> Figure out a way to make that go away. If you didn't want it to be associated with something, restructure it a little bit. You can kind of have, you have that freedom. Nobody's going to be upset if the chair changes just a teeny bit. But those are those things where I hope in this, you know, in these coming months before the game happens, in November, that they can kind of figure out if it still exists, which I have, like, I'm hopeful. I feel like somewhere it's sitting in someone's, like, coat closet. I feel like it still exists. I hope they can come to an agreement on how to make it work, because I think fans really looked forward to that, and when you are in, when you are so new to a conference, you want to keep building that. So I think, in my opinion, find a way to make it work. See, I wasn't even aware that it was in the stadium last year. That makes it even better. It's kind of like a... Uh... Tom Brady's missing jersey case so that's right. that's interesting right <laughs> um but yeah like you said it's just a fun thing and and I agree that you know as long as no feelings are getting hurt over it then then what's the harm especially if both fan bases embraced it so we'll, we'll be on the lookout for the five dollar bits of broken chair trophy and uh, maybe we'll, we'll it'll see it'll be it my tw- big research piece for the fall yes yes <laughs> we'll see hopefully we'll see it in 2017 um I, I hope so speaking of Minnesota though um I did want to get your impression of uh, their new head coach, P.J. Fleck. Um, As we all who follow the conference know, he's made a loud impression um, since being hired in Minneapolis. And I I just want to get your thoughts on on the job you think Coach Fleck is going to do and and how he's gone about his business so far with the, you know, kind of the flamboyance and exuberance that that he's expressed there. I mean, he definitely, the best word for me to use is he is a disruptor. So he he really came into this conference and he sort of just started immediately disrupting. And that's not a bad thing. I think think anytime he can kind, anytime you can get coaches, you know, to come in and sort of stir the pot a little bit, that's never a bad thing. You want, you want a school like Minnesota, you want schools like Minnesota and Northwestern 
and some of these schools that like kind of seem to always be on that cusp of like they could just be right there in contention with everyone else or they could kind of you want them to continue that because I always say every single year the two games that really stand out to me on Nebraska's schedule are Minnesota and Northwestern because those are two teams that I think can beat Nebraska any year at any time for any reason so with PJ Fleck he is just so entertaining I mean from moving sidelines to his recruiting to the whole road the boat thing I mean he is clearly an enthusiastic guy and I know he even kind of like got into a like not intentionally but like Nebraska and Minnesota kind of got into that whole you know recruiting loophole on how you could use you know recruits in a video to promote a camp because like technically Nebraska was doing it but PJ Fleck got credit so that kind of made Nebraska a little bit like mad because they were already sort of doing that loophole as well so it's like He's already disrupting things, and so I don't know what job he will actually do on the field for these players. That's one thing I will be interested to see how this season plays out for Minnesota and the type of coach he is when the game rolls around. But from just a, from just a like starting to kind of light the fire in the Big Ten, he's doing that. And so if nothing else, he's creating a lot more uh, entertainment outside of someone just like Jim Harbaugh. We need more entertainment, so why not? Why not have another coach sort of entertaining? And he's nowhere on Harbaugh's level, but uh, still, it's kind of fun to have coaches that can kind of, like I said, disrupt a little bit. Maybe he'll be the Jim Harbaugh of the West. Maybe Um, he will be. So, Aaron, that's uh, a lot of great stuff we've got from you so far. Before I let you go, I did want to get a few predictions from you. Um, We're doing this with all the Land of Ten writers for the upcoming season, so we'll be able to hold them to it and, and laugh at how wrong they are oh boy. at the end of the season. So we're going to mark these down. And uh, the first prediction I want to get from you, this one's a little harder to, to, to judge and to gauge, but I wanted to know if you had to pick one sleeper out of the Big Ten West who you think could surprise, uh, surprise some teams. Because I think, in my opinion, Wisconsin's probably the favorite heading in. Who's a sleeper in the West that you think could make it to Indianapolis in, uh, in December? I don't know if this is, like, fair because it kind of makes me feel like I'm a homer, but I do feel like your your sleeper is Nebraska. I think I, – I feel like I agree with you. Wisconsin has a great shot. Um, Iowa sort of is always, like, kind of just in talks, but I feel like if Nebraska's season goes the way it can go, my – to a certain degree, my money would be on Nebraska to be that sleeper, to get into – to get to Indianapolis, but it's going to depend a lot on that Wisconsin game and if they can get past the Badgers. All right, so how about the uh, prediction for the Big Ten West champion? Are you going to go with Wisconsin or someone else? I would probably take Wisconsin at this point. I, I would love to see Nebraska beat them, and maybe maybe they will, and I kind of go back and forth at times about how I feel about it, but right now I think Wisconsin sort of has that upper hand, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to let them keep it. All right. So how about the team that uh, whoever makes it out of the West? Who do you think they'll face in Indianapolis out of the East? Obviously, the East is pretty loaded at the top with a few contenders that could plausibly make it. Who are you picking out of the East to uh, to make it to Indy? That's a great. The East is. You are very. You are right. They are loaded on the East side. I mean, I'm thinking like last year it was Penn State. That that's just like sort of amazing to me. Um, 
Okay, if I had it, like as much, I'm going to say Ohio State. I'm going to, I want to say either Michigan State or Ohio State, and I feel like you could just sit here and make the case for Michigan State, Ohio State, Michigan, or Penn State, but I'm going to take Ohio State. I think it might be a very classic matchup of Ohio State and Wisconsin uh, come the end of it. All right, mark if it I'm down. If I'm wrong, I'm fine with that. <laughs> mark it down, and uh, we'll let you go ahead and pick a winner as well. Who's going to be the 2017 Big Ten champion? I feel like there's a lot of momentum around Ohio State right now, so I'm going to give it to Ohio State. Like I said, if I'm wrong on that, I'm fine with it. I will not be upset if I'm wrong, but I'm for right now, I'm going to give it to them. I'm going to say Ohio State will be your 2017 Big Ten champion. All right, and final prediction. The Big Ten player, or I'm leaving it open to uh, multiple players here if you want to select a couple, who do you think has the best chance to – win the Heisman Trophy, and um, at the very least, make it to New York and be a Heisman contender, one of those final five that they have in New York? Well, I'll go with the person that everyone was so upset isn't going to be at Big Ten Media Days, JT Barrett. Everybody thought he should be there, um, so I'll take, I'll take him. I feel like Ohio State, just like I said, they've got a lot of momentum going for them right now, and I feel like JT Barrett has a lot of potential as well, so... I like his odds. Um, now, if I was a if I was a uh, real uh, troll, I would say Tanner Lee, but <laughs> I'm not going to put that much pressure on him just yet. We'll let him start the season before the Heisman talk begins. All right, Tanner Lee, dark horse Heisman candidate, but yes, uh, Aaron Sorensen, high on the Buckeyes heading into this season. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll make note of that. And um, that's all I got for you today, Aaron. Thanks so much for taking the time to join the Big Ten football preview episode and definitely keep in touch as the season goes along. I'm sure we'll uh, we'll need you again for some Husker insight. Absolutely, and I'll try not to uh, break any more players between now and the start of the season. Yeah, don't just just if you do stay uh, stay away from Twitter. If you do. Stay away. <laughs> all right, take care. Thank you. Thanks again to Sean, Scott, and Aaron for joining me and for all the excellent insight. These episodes were a lot of fun to do, and I really learned a lot about what to expect from the Big Ten East and West Divisions, the entire conference heading into 2017. And I don't know about you, but I'm ready for football season to start. Let's get it rolling. Thanks, as always, to Wes White for producing, and thanks to everyone out there for listening, especially if you listen to all three four hours however long it's going to turn out to be of the take 10 football preview big 10 media day edition episode extra bonus points if you're able to make it through all of the discussion and analysis so uh don't forget to check out the other episode on the big 10 east where we have equally excellent coverage of the other half of the conference and until then we will talk to you next time on take 10